just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. Great to have you today here. I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, she is a fascinating author, uh, and she really gets into some depth, asks a lot of good questions, and I appreciate that. Uh, she's the author of an award-winning book called Confronting Christianity, and she has a follow-up to that that is available now. It is called Confronting Jesus. looks just like it. It is written by Rebecca McLaughlin. And uh, she joins me today, and we're going to talk through this. And well, I'll just I'll get to the some of my questions with her. Um, but let me just welcome you, Rebecca. Great to have you on Life Today Live. Thanks for having me. So, the book is written uh, with uh, a non-Christian audience in mind, which which I, I think is it's fabulous. It's a great way to introduce people to Christ. But I think it's very interesting for Christians as well because of the way you go. Uh, your approach to his encounters with people. Walk us through kind of somewhere you're coming from, because I, I like this a little different angle, and I like mm, it. Mm, mm. I think there are broadly two approaches we can take when we're writing a, apologetics books, you know, books that are helping people to think through the maybe the big objections to Christianity or the big reasons for considering Christianity. And one which most books in this uh, genre take is to write to Christians saying, hey, now, here are some of the objections your friends might have. Here are some <laughs> questions you might encounter. Um, maybe you can talk to your friends. There's another approach which I prefer to take, which is to actually write to everybody um, or my brothers and sisters, sort of non-Christian friends. Um, and so, yeah, Confronting Jesus is is intended to do that as kind of a follow-up to my first book, Confronting Christianity, which was looking at you know, 12 major objections people have to Christianity. And imagine, you know, you have a friend who perhaps has has worked through some of those objections and is curious about Jesus but isn't yet ready to pick up a book uh, of the Bible, you know, one of the gospels for themselves and just kind of read it straight. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I say in the introduction or somewhere early on in confronting Jesus, if you get frustrated with this book and want to just read one of the gospels, please do. Like actually that's, <laughs> that would be great. That would be a fantastic outcome. But what I've tried to do in the book is, is look at nine aspects of, of Jesus as we encounter him in the gospels, um, nine identities uh, of, of who he is um, to help people see not only are the Gospels reliable historical um, accounts of Jesus's life, giving us access to eyewitness testimony about this first century Jewish man, but that actually in in the Gospels, we encounter someone who breaks all of our molds and who answers our deepest questions and, and most profound longings in ways that we might not expect. So, so the idea of the book is to walk through nine identities of, of Jesus and look closely at what the Gospels say about him. It's looking across all four Gospels rather than just focused on one and just give, me a little, little, give people a little introduction to who Jesus is. Uh, you know, when, when Jesus walked the earth, uh, his encounters with people caused a lot of problems with other people. <laughs> and, mm. and I think he still does that today. What, what jumped out at you when you started looking at it from this relational aspect? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which uh, the real sort of teachings and identity of Jesus um, catch us off guard today or cause, cause trouble, <laughs> um, to put it that way today, <laughs> are that he, he doesn't actually fit into our um, 
typical paradigms when it comes to many of the, the big issues of our day. So, so for instance, um, on the one hand, when, when Jesus um, talks about questions of sexual ethics, instead of loosening up what the Old Testament teaches, he actually tightens it up. And, and instead of preaching a kind of gospel of free love, as it, as it were, um, he's actually extraordinarily strict and serious when he talks about sexual sin and, and judgment. And, and we might expect to hear something of that nature coming from people who might be um, sort of more politically conservative, I suppose, um, or sort of on, on, on the, the right uh, in, our, mm. uh, in our paradigms. At the same time, when Jesus talks about um, poverty uh, and when he talks about um, love across racial difference, we actually hear him saying things which we're maybe more used to hearing from people coming more more from the from the left, mm. um, and so our kind of political and even sometimes our sort of religious paradigms map very poorly on onto Jesus. He actually uh, leaves all of us, regardless of kind of where we feel most comfortable politically, he leaves all of us with some very awkward challenges. Um, and some very serious concerns. And, and I think he, he also breaks down the misunderstanding that I think Christians have often had, which is that um, we might think that, for, for instance, in order to uphold Christian sexual ethics, we have the right to or even, um, even the responsibility to sort of speak and act hatefully towards people outside the church who, who don't live according to Christian sexual ethics. When actually Jesus tells us to love even our enemies, like even those most hostile to us, even in his, his context and the context of many Christians around the world today, even people who, who would literally want to, to drag you off to prison or, or to have you executed, that we are to, to love those people. How much more are we to, to love those who, who may not be Christians and who may not be living according to Christian sexual ethics? Almost why would they? I mean, it's, it's uh, we... I, I think often we have um, lent into actually kind of sinful ways of relating to people um, outside the church that aren't according to to what the New Testament um, calls us to, and we've we've created sort of a false dichotomy between between that um, you know acting and 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 speaking in loving ways toward um, non-believers who who may be engaging all kinds of sinful um, practices, including sort of sexual sin. Um, on, on the one hand, and, and thinking that, you know, we choose between loving people and, and speaking the truth, when actually the scriptures in general and the gospels in particular call us to speak the truth in love mm -hmm. to people and, and to recognize that throughout the gospels, in our Bible study group at our, our church, we're, we're working through Matthew's gospel at the moment. We just, you know, had the entire Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is completely going after the scribes and the Pharisees that, you know, the most religious people, the most sort of seemingly righteous people of his day and absolutely um, like throwing the judgment at them. <laughs> um, and yet we see him welcoming the most evident sinners in his society. Um, so we've often landed, I think, as Christians in places that when we, when we open up the, the gospels, we find aren't the places that Jesus is calling us to land. Okay. Now, talk about confronting. <laughs> you're, you're confronting the way a lot of people live and think uh, and challenging it. Um, what do you, where do we go from there? Because, I mean, what, it's, 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 you're applying things 
in a modern time, right? Uh, not fitting right or left, and it's the same. It was the same thing with Christ back then. He, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. there to uphold the Romans, but he wasn't there to overthrow them. Uh, you know, and he wasn't there to uphold the law of the Pharisees, but he wasn't there to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where do we, where do we land with this? I mean, do we just need to reverse all, all of our applying our views and trying to fit Jesus into it, and and just really kind of wipe it, wipe it clean, and go, okay, who is Christ? Is that really the best approach? Yeah, I don't know about you. Any time I sit down to read, frankly, the Bible in general, but but the Gospels in particular, I find myself um, confronted, <laughs> for want of a better word. I find myself thinking, gosh, you know, reading, for example, Jesus' famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus and, and how he just kind of casually remarks that the rich man and the poor man both died and the rich man essentially went to hell and the poor man went to Abraham's bosom, a sort of vision of, of um, you know, connection with the Lord and seeing, um, gosh, the, the awkwardness of, of a parable like that for somebody like me who, who lives in a sort of very prosperous society in a very kind of materially comfortable way. Um, the challenge, so, so on the one hand, I think we should always be coming to the scripture expecting to have to both repent and believe like as we turn each page even those of us who are already followers of jesus will find ourselves needing to repent and believe and at the same time i i think it it's really helpful if we if we use the scriptures to um help us let go of a, a, a fictional vision of, of our past as Christians. Um, and this this can be true, actually. I mean, I, I come from the UK, as, as your discerning listeners may notice from my voice. Um, my husband comes from the US, and I've you know, lived um, sub- substantial periods of my life in, in both these countries. And in both, both the UK and the US, it's easy to imagine a kind of once upon a time when our country was a, a Christian country and everything was kind of going well according to Christian ethics and then suddenly everything went terribly wrong and now now here we are and what we need to do is to go back to that past, whether it was, you know, the 50s or whether it was, you know, how, whether it was sort of decades or, or, or centuries ago, this kind of once upon a time. But if we, if we open our Bibles and if we look at our history, we'll find that actually there was never a once upon a time when our society was living according to Christian ethics because, you know, perhaps... You could go back in the US before the civil rights movement and say, okay, maybe there was more of an understanding of Christian sexual ethics in, in at least some respects. But actually there was a you know horrific record of sin when it comes to how white Christians were treating um, black believers. Um, and, and so to say that, that our society was living according to Christian ethics across the board is just you know to, to either ignore the scriptures or to ignore, ignore history. And it can be really disorienting for us to, to have that recognition but I don't think it has to be. I, I think instead we can, instead of sort of harking back to to the past and thinking if only we could get back, I think instead we need to open our Bibles and say, hey, let's let's see if we can build a, a better future, mm-hmm. not a future that's built on kind of um, you know modern secular or progressive ideals that that pull us away from the scriptures, but actually a, a future that's built on on the scriptures themselves. And and as we do that, we'll find that that in some ways, and and it's only in some. In some ways, actually, the aspirations of our most secular neighbors today have been shaped by Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. 
And so some of the things that they desire and believe in, like universal human rights, like the equality of men and women, like love across racial difference, um, all, all of these things like the, the, the fact that the rich and the strong and the powerful don't have the right to trample on the weak and the poor and the marginalized, all these actually come from Christian, Christian ethics. Mm. Um, and when we take Christianity out of the foundation, they, they, they crumble away. Um, and so I think we have a, I think we have an opportunity, those of us who are wanting to, to take our lead from, from the Bible to, instead of sort of spending our time just like lamenting and wishing we could go back to the past, actually to build a, a more Christian future, mm. um, as we lean into Christian ethics across the board. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I want to, I want to get to some of the points in the book, uh, so that people understand sort of your, your process going through this, because you identify sort of nine identities of Christ. Mm. Uh, and I'll let you pick. I mean, I've, they're all interesting uh, from, you know, different viewpoints, but what, what, which of these stood out to you perhaps the most? And one that my heart is very close to is the, the chapter that's titled um, Jesus the Lover. Huh. And the reason for that is um, not only because of some of the pressing kind of cultural questions of, of our day, but also because of my own personal history I'm someone who as long as I can remember I've been a Christian and as long as I can remember I've been attracted to other women like that's sort of been what seems to have most kind of naturally arisen from from me at least in my in terms of my experience um it, the, the more I study the scriptures the more clear it has been to me that the Bible does not affirm same-sex sexual relationships for Christians um I, I think those who are trying to make that case are of are ultimately failing and that, that it, that's profoundly detrimental actually to to the church um uh, people trying to kind of argue that the bible doesn't say a clear no to same-sex marriage um because i think it does but i think as as we um ponder on these questions we need to dig into the bible to understand what christian marriage is even about in the first place and what we see when we do that is this big picture that this overarching story that that's told um, from the Old Testament to the New. We see a story in the Old Testament um, of God as a faithful, loving husband, and Israel as his often unfaithful wife. And it's like um, a, a marriage that's in crisis because God's people keep cheating on God with with other uh, idols. Um, and by the end of the Old Testament, it seems like this marriage is, is simply headed for divorce and and disaster. And then Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and he says he is the bridegroom. Now, it's a strange comment to make for a man who in his life on earth never married anybody. <laughs> so what is Jesus talking about? Well, as he, as he uses that description of himself, um, he, he's stepping into the shoes of the creator God revealed in the Old Testament. And, and as the, the New Testament then unfolds, we see um, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 comparing human marriage, sort of saying it's, it's like a little scale model of Jesus' love for his church. And we see even at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, this great shout going up, the wedding of the lamb has come mm -hmm. and Jesus is marriage to his church, bringing heaven and earth back together. And so this is actually why marriage is male, female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it's a life creating, never ending, flesh uniting, exclusive love. So marriage is, is meant to point us to Christ but it's also meant to disappoint us because even the, the, the best human marriage could only ever be a tiny echo of Jesus's love for us. Mm -hmm. And so we need to understand what even Christian marriage is, is, is about um, 
from a biblical perspective that it, it points us to something much greater than it's itself. It's not actually the, the end. It's the signpost <laughs> um, to the end, which is our relationship with Jesus. And I think we need to rediscover the, the other things that the, the New Testament says about love. I mean, one of the, the mantras of our age is that love is love. And, and, and what that means to people is to say, well, of course, a um, relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman can be just as faithful, just as um, enduring, just as sort of good and beautiful as the relationship between a, a man and a woman. And, and I think as, as Bible-believing Christians, we need to say both no to that, because as, as I said, the very clear boundaries around sexual and romantic relationships that the Bible gives us. But in, in another sense, actually, actually, yes, I think the Bible, I think the New Testament gives us a, a vision for brotherly and sisterly love that is actually more intimate and beautiful and good mm -hmm. than, than the world can give us. And, and we, even in the church, we've kind of lost sight of that because we've been so busy and understandably busy sort of defending Christian marriage. Right that we've, we've bought into the lie that our culture believes, which is that the only real intimacy happens in the context of a sort of sexual or romantic relationship. And so, you know, finding your soulmate and getting married to them is like the thing, when actually Jesus, even on the night that he's betrayed, said to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. And we've, we've completely lost that vision. So as Christians, we're not saying, we're not offering less love than the world has. We're actually offering more, but we're saying you can glimpse God's love for us through different kinds of human relationship. Well, yeah, and that's very, that's very interesting because we've gone from God is love to love is God. Uh, mm. And the reality is we are told to love and the way we are told to love one another, mm. you know, is, is a, a very intimate but non-sexual relationship uh, and, and, if anybody that's been around for any while knows that sex is not love, you know, mm, in yeah. fact, sometimes it's, it's quite the, the opposite. I, yeah. I, I'm wondering where do you land when you, when you look at y yourself, uh, and, and being married to a man, obviously, uh, now do you, do you feel restrained? Do you feel like you're denying your true self or is there a wholeness that's come with saying, okay, I'm not going to do it the way I want to do it or the way I may be inclined to do it, but I'm going to choose to do it God's way. I'm going to look at marriage and sexuality God's way. What has that done for you? Um, I think honestly, my experience is probably not unlike the experience of, of many other Christians who are, who are married and may, um, may be attracted to those of the opposite sex. My, my guess is that almost everybody who is married will at some point be attracted to somebody they're not married to. Uh, sure. Um, in my case, I, I've been happily married to a man for the last 15 years. The times when I've ever fe felt attracted to somebody else, it's always been to another woman. Um, it's, you know, not to another man, but, but um, my guess is that the times my husband's been attracted to other people, it's always also been to other women. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> in some sense, all of us who are married, we're denying us. I mean, Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mm. Um, so whether we're single or married as Christians, we're actually all in, in some meaningful sense denying ourselves. We are saying no, whether single or married, mm -hmm. to any um, sexual or romantic relationships outside of one male-female marriage at most, <laughs> right? right. Um, so uh, there, are some, there are certainly some ways in which being a, a Christian who's um, attracted to the same sex um, versus to the opposite sex and actually m m most of people you know whether christians or otherwise who are attracted to the same sex 
um, it's not exclusively so. Uh, to where they couldn't possibly have a, a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. It's about, for, for women, it seems like about 14% of women are attracted to other women and only about 1% are exclusively attracted to other women so they couldn't possibly authentically be married to a man. And for men, it's about 7% who are attracted to other men and only 2% who are exclusively same-sex attracted. Now, now there are certainly brothers and sisters in those categories who who just actually, it wouldn't, um, it, it simply wouldn't work for them to be married to someone of the opposite sex. Um and actually, that's fine. I mean, the vision of singleness that the, the New yeah. Testament holds up for us is, good. Um, is so much more beautiful and, and and full than our impoverished view of singleness, which is usually a kind of, oh, well, hopefully one day you'll get married and, oh, dear, you didn't, never mind, sort of. I mean, we have this very unbiblical, subbiblical <laughs> view of singleness, which, you know, Paul said, Paul, who, who talked about Christian marriage as a signpost to Jesus's relationship with his church, said singleness is even better. Is even better so yeah. so we, we, we've gone way off course. Um, but all of us, I think, are saying no to um, sexual and romantic desire um, in, in the majority of contexts, in the majority of, of cases. But we're not, whereas in, in one sense we're denying ourselves, in another sense, um, the, the, the longer I go on in the Christian life, the more I think God is never trying to deny us something that is really ultimately for our good. Um, when when God says no to to something, he, it's actually because He has a better yes to tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of us, in whatever our areas of, of of sin and temptation are, whether it's sort of sexual sin or any other kind of sin, the constant battle is: Are we going to believe Jesus? Are we going to believe that He loves us? Are we going to believe that He knows us better than we know ourselves, and that He wants better for us than we can even imagine? And if we if we do believe that, then we can trust Him in the situations every day when in one way or another we need to say no to what might most seemingly naturally arise in us. That's just a tip of what she talks about uh, in the book. Uh, I want to show you a couple things real quick. This uh, right here is uh, her website, RebeccaMcLaughlin.org, and you can find lots of interesting things there, lots of good resources, of course, information about the books, uh, including an upcoming book. We'll have to look at that one soon. But uh, the book we're talking about today is this one, which is called Confronting Jesus. Uh, and it's available. It comes with a study guide. Uh, in fact, let me show it to you. I've got the study guide. If you if you want to do a study, especially if you're working with new believers or non-believers, I think it's a great resource. Um, there's a DVD if you still have a DVD player, which I'm guessing the materials are available online as well, which is how most people access these things. But I, w- I want to ask one question, and I was looking in my notes where I got this. Uh, but oh, okay. Um, the heroic aspect of Jesus, the, the, the mm-hmm. idea that there is something above, something better, something. Uh, I mean, maybe supernatural. Maybe not. I, I'm curious why that word uh, is is used in in the way you describe Jesus. And I know we're going to go over a couple minutes, but <laughs> I, I would love to hear your perspective on that why is he yeah, heroic? G- it, it, jesus is the the hero of the story of the universe he is the most powerful man ever to have walked this earth mm. he is the the one through whom all things were made and the one who will return as judge of all the earth and yet he is the one who chose to use all of this strength to die the most shameful and humiliating and painful death and that the Roman Empire could devise so that miserable sinners like you and me could be welcomed into everlasting life with him. 
So he is this this uh, massive hero beyond our wildest dreams, and the 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 most humble, loving, tender person we could imagine. Um, who said that even he, the son of man, the, the great and glorious king, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the hero of the Gospels. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, you need to pick it up, pick up the book. You can, I'll hit them real quick. Jesus, the Jew, Jesus, the son, Jesus, the king, Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the teacher, the lover, the servant, the sacrifice, and the Lord. Uh, a great thing, I think, even though written geared uh, for non-Christians and a wonderful resource in that regard, I think every Christian will enjoy reading it. Uh, it'll it'll just bring him alive to you. So, Rebecca, is there anything you want to mention before I let you go? I really appreciate this. It's been, been a very interesting conversation. Well, thanks so much, Randy, for having me. We appreciate you guys out there watching. Hit like, hit share, hit follow. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, do that and come back. We've got more for you right here on Life Today Live. Appreciate you guys being here. Check out Confronting Jesus. We'll see you again next time. God incarnate as the appointed mediator between God and man. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way to God is Jesus Christ. Thanks, Brad.